people seem to be worried about with AI is just making sure that humans still are in charge. And in that sense, I think our book is optimistic in just trying to point out ways that humans can still be in charge, even of this uh, complicated uh, technology like uh, AI. And basically, there are a lot of tools we have in terms of policies, uh, laws, and regulations to deal with the aspects that people view as problematic. Welcome to episode 325 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we're about to express uh, are uh, not only not held, but probably held, uh, believed to be shocking by our firm, our institutions, our clients, our certainly our families who have to listen to it, and uh, increasingly, I fear, our pets. Uh, I, today, I'm going to be interviewing Daryl West uh, from the Brookings Institution, uh, author, uh, uh, co-author of Turning Point Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. But first, we're going to do a news roundup, uh, and we've got a slightly larger complement of participants because I've asked Paul Hughes, who uh, is in Steptoe's uh, 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 European office uh, uh, and who focuses on privacy and data protection to join us for the discussion of the recent Schrems 2 decision. Uh, also joining us uh, and uh, uh, a, a sometime contributor whom I hope will become a more of a regular, Sultan Meji, who is the uh, CEO and co-founder of Neocova. Nate Jones, of course, uh, founder of Culper Partners uh, uh, and former assistant general counsel for Microsoft, uh, former national security counsel staffer, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, also, Mark McCarthy, senior fellow at Georgetown Law uh, and uh, the Future of Privacy Forum. Uh, I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur of today's program. Uh, as I kind of uh, 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 suggested or foreshadowed, uh, the first topic we really need to cover is the Schrems 2 decision uh, from the European Court of Justice uh, uh, essentially uh, uh, holding below the waterline uh, the entire uh, uh, data protection uh, uh, regime set forth uh, uh, as as an effort to bridge the gap between the United States and Europe. Uh, so, Paul, can you give us a quick and simple explanation of what the court was asked to do? Yes, I'd be very happy to do that, Stuart. So the court was asked to consider, um, because of litigation uh, that had arisen from the Austrian activist uh, Max Schrems' challenge to Facebook's use of his data, uh, whether the um, EU-US privacy shield um, was a valid mechanism for ensuring that data transfers, in this case to the US, um, was uh, an adequate mechanism for protecting the fundamental rights of data subjects in the EU. Uh, it was also the case that the Court of Justice on the referral from the Irish High Court was asked to consider whether the standard contractual clauses laid down by the EC Commission, the European Commission, um, were an effective way of safeguarding the personal data of data subjects in the EU where that was being transferred to third countries, including the US. 
it totally struck down the EU-US privacy shield as not providing essentially equivalent forms of protection for personal data, and it hedged around the use of standard contractual clauses in a pretty limiting way by indicating that where you do transfer data to a third country, a non-EEA country, then the recipient has to undertake due diligence, as does the exporting data controller, to ensure that in practice those standard contractual clauses are going to be effective. And if they're not, then they have to cease the transfer and the relevant data protection authority, if they don't cease the transfer, has to step in and prevent it. Let me let me, let me jump in on that. The the theory of privacy shield and the safe harbor before it uh, was that U.S. companies bringing data back to the U.S. from Europe could agree uh, to uh, obey European law when they even when they got the data in the United States uh, or and the same was true of the standard uh, uh, clauses that yes. essentially the clauses would be a promise to observe European law, no matter where the data ended up. And what the uh, Court of Justice said really affects both of them. It said you cannot make a promise contractually that overrides the uh, sovereignty of the country where you're holding the data. And if the country's law with respect to uh, individual rights is inadequate, then uh, you cannot export the data uh, uh, to that country. Uh, and then the court uh, um, reviewed U.S. law, imposed a very strict and very, I, I think, uh, uh, solipsistic uh, uh, view of what uh, is required by way of individual rights in, in data uh, and said that's not sufficient, uh, which essentially says Nobody outside the United, uh, outside of Europe has adequate laws by the lights of the uh, European Court of Justice. And that means that while there's still some legal issues to play out and the, the standard clauses haven't yet been completely struck down, the fact is you can see the writing on the wall. Uh, data cannot go anywhere under the standard that was announced by the European Court of Justice. That's how I read it. Um, yes, except that I think that there are still countries who do have an adequacy decision where their um, state surveillance powers are not necessarily at, at the level that was found with disfavor to prevent protection for data subjects in the U.S. case. So. Yeah, maybe. I see that. You know, Argentina has an agreement like that. If you believe that Argentina's uh, rules for protecting individual rights in data are actually uh, adequate and actually meet the the court standard, I, uh, you know, I have a book. A, bridge in Brooklyn that you might be interested in as well. I, I, they will not survive, and they're the biggest country. I mean, uh, uh, Russia's not uh, adequate. Uh, China's obviously not adequate. India's been waiting 10 years to be found adequate and has never uh, passed. Uh, uh, Canada's already been hosed by the court. Australia's been waiting years and isn't going to make it. I, uh, the court, I'm... It's like the Dred Scott decision. It has managed to take a difficult political issue and turn it into a 
absolutely unreconcilable test of whether uh, the uh, the court has the authority to make its uh, uh, decision stick. And I don't think it does. I think there's only one country that it was trying to please, and that's Germany, because the German um, constitutional court, some of the judges spoke before the adoption of the GDPR and said they were concerned about maintaining fundamental rights. Um, the German constitutional court has also said that they won't recognize the European Court of Justice's um, supremacy over EU law matters if they don't protect mm -hmm. fundamental rights. So I think they were playing a game where they have to keep the German constitutional court happy or they lose their uh, all-encompassing all power as the yeah. Supreme Court of the EU. Well, this, 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 I hope the Germans are satisfied because at least if I got my way, I'm, I'm making this argument in a lawfare post that will go up today. Yeah. Uh, the U.S. has a terrific case that this is a violation of the WTO and it's got authority given that we don't go to the WTO anymore. We just, uh, uh take matters into our own hands. The, uh, President Trump has the authority today or maybe in, in two months to impose massive tariffs on German cars and car parts uh, and uh, automobile or sorry uh, airplane uh, uh, parts and airplanes uh, uh, and probably would be justified in saying I'm going to make those tariffs four percent of global uh, gross revenue because that's what the penalty is on the other side um, uh, that would certainly get uh, the attention even of the German court because they'd, uh, they'd have a lot of automobiles that the, the, the Germany's not selling. Um, a, and I think if the U.S. government plays its cards right, um, it ought to be able to create an international um, reaction to this that uh, essentially says we are sovereign nations. You don't write our intelligence laws, our surveillance laws, in Brussels or Strasbourg or Luxembourg, uh, uh, we write them here. Uh, we're democratic nations just like yours, and you don't get to tell us how democracy works. Uh, uh, and so if the U.S. plays its cards right, it could build a large international coalition to penalize Europe for this very high-handed act. The good news for lawyers is this will go on. It'll be a mess for some time. I've got some ideas for how to uh, solve it short of a, a giant global trade war. Uh, uh, but uh, I think a glo giant global trade war is where we're going. Thank you, Paul. Uh, Sultan, I, uh, <laughs> the Iranians uh, managed the Iranian cyber espionage team I actually have some pretty good training videos, uh, which uh, now everybody in the world has gotten to watch. They do, and and potentially thanks to our friends at the agency for for giving them to us. This is uh, absolutely fantastic. I can imagine, you know, a bunch of students hovering around these, you know, pecking away at this. But yeah, basically. The Iranians have recorded these fantastic videos of them going in and uh, trying to hack people, including uh, some U.S. military officials, uh, especially a U.S. Navy guy. Um, and for once, the State Department seemed to be on the right side when they went to uh, to go after a State Department official. They were using two-factor. So yay for the State Department for doing it correctly.
Um, it's kind of sad. The, the Iranians are just stuck. <laughs> if, we, if we just use two-factor, they're out of luck, huh? Well, you know, they're not exactly on the cutting edge of things. I think, you know, uh, later on we'll talk about a, a slightly different program involving uh, some tax software here that uh, that probably is a little more interesting. This is uh, this is hacking 101, and uh, and I love that they made videos that we can all uh, we can all watch and, and giggle at. So, Nate, um, uh, I want to bring in here the question of was it NSA that 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 did this or the CIA because the CIA has apparently had for the last couple of years uh, really pretty remarkable new authorities from the Trump administration. Yeah, so this is this flows from a Yahoo report uh, from last week that uh, reveals that the the president uh, President Trump signed a, a finding in 2018 authorizing uh, the CIA to conduct uh, offensive cyber operations covertly. Uh, these are not collection authorities. Uh, they they I think made one or two potentially significant changes. One is substantive. And uh, it it apparently authorizes the CIA to target um, uh, a list of countries and potentially others, but the list of countries is not entirely surprising. China, Iran, North Korea, and Russia. Uh, this report would obviously fit squarely within that. Um, and it it authorizes them to take uh, new, I guess, to engage in types of activities online that are are somewhat new for the United States. Um, they can. Uh, directly target critical infrastructure, the report says. They can engage in Russia-style hack-and-dump operations, of which uh, this Iran case would certainly be one. And uh, it authorizes them to target religious, charitable, financial, and a a variety of other private institutions with these efforts. Um, The U.S. has historically been careful about venturing down these paths, because of the potential harms that could flow from it, and that's true both literally from from the hack itself and figuratively, um, I guess in the sense of setting precedents for other countries to follow, um, losing our moral high ground to criticize Russia, Iran, and others who engage in these types of operations. The, the article's a bit fuzzy in which operations have been conducted pursuant to this. It says that at least a dozen have been carried out pursuant to this authority, um, it references some hack and dump operations, and it, it's, in my view at least, seems to speculate about what those are, but doesn't um, doesn't say assertively that that uh, certain hack and dump operations have been carried out. You know, in terms of how significant these changes are, I think it really depends on how these authorities are carried out. There are times when these types of authorities are given to agencies. Um, to stimulate creative thinking, so to speak, you know, find more creative ways to do things without crossing certain policy lines. Um, and, you know, without knowing what they're actually doing pursuant to these authorities, it's, it's a little difficult to know exactly how much has changed substantively. On the procedural side, the big change is, is pretty straightforward. It authorizes the CIA to conduct these types of operations on its own accord. Um, it doesn't appear to require White House-led interagency process vetting and approval, um, which was sort of the norm in the Obama administration. 
you know, as someone who believes process matters, that you want to consider all of the ramifications of these things. Um, you want people uh, approving these things who have broader perspective and are politically accountable and so on and so forth. I would normally be pretty concerned about the ramifications of doing these these sort of, um, you know, single agency operations without thinking them through. Um, but, you know, there's a big but here in this administration there. I can see potential advantages to these kinds of process changes, um, you know, in first and foremost. Basically, the, 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 the president, the president doesn't hear about it and doesn't <laughs> well, have, get to weigh in. <laughs> yeah, the person sitting at the top of the process is an uninformed, inexperienced, indecisive, self-interested slacker who's hostile to anything that Russia won't like. And so, you know, I could see, you know, freeing up the, the individual individual agencies to take these kinds of actions could produce some positive results for the United States. But but still, it, it, there, it carries a lot of risks to do business this way. Um, you know, the, the old saying of is, when, isn't, isn't when you're this, holding a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, it, you run a real risk of, of these agencies doing these things without deconflicting, without thinking them through clearly. Isn't this really what uh, Cyber Command got as well? Uh, a, a very broad, uh, uh, very long leash. Uh, um, a, and I'm, I would have guessed that they were decided around the same time and yeah. that uh, if Cyber Command got them, uh, got their authority first, that uh, the CIA was in saying we want the same thing and presented a finding that was designed to give them lots and lots of discretion. For sure. I, I think there are a lot of parallels between that and the Cybercom thing. We haven't seen the details of, of the Cybercom delegation either, um, but but there do appear to be some parallels. Um, but again, without knowing what actions they're taking and what kind of, of, of actual sort of guidance, political and otherwise, they're getting outside of that that formal delegation of authority. It's, it's hard to know just how much the gloves have come off, how long that leash is for them. Yeah. The, the one thing that, that gives me pause is the reference to financial institutions. And it's a little unclear whether it's financial institutions that are acting on behalf of um, uh, uh, rogue governments or whether they're just authorized to go in and hack uh, banks. The sec the latter would be uh, uh, something of concern because uh, we got a lot of banks that we probably don't want people hacking. And uh, uh, by and large, uh, uh, Putin, Xi, they've all got a lot of money in banks themselves. So they haven't been eager to go there either. And we probably uh, have a sort of uh, mutual assured destruction uh, that could get upset if we uh, start getting close to the line. Yeah, I agree with that. All right, uh, Sultan. Uh, uh, the um, uh, the other topic that you wanted to raise was uh, uh, Chinese malware and a relatively sophisticated way for getting it uh, into the networks of. Uh, U.S. and Western companies. Uh, uh, can you give us a little bit of background on that? Yeah, absolutely. So 
for those who don't know, the the, the PRC government and, and Stuart, I will always refer to it that way, uh, not as, as the Chinese government, because, you know, which one are we talking right. about? That's, that's uh, there are Taiwan, two. Yeah. There are two entities, uh, subsidies of the PRC government that are the only two organizations allowed to offer tax software, uh, if you are operating in the PRC to play, to pay everything from value added tax to, to other things. And in what inside one and potentially now we're discovering both of those organizations, the tax software comes preloaded with malware that magically will start scanning through everything else on your network. So if you are a Western corporation and you have to install this software in order to pay your taxes, that you now have these nice little things called Golden Helper and Golden Spy that have system level access to, to those systems and the networks they're connected to. Yeah, it's this, this is really, as I we mean, said last time, it's basically not Petya, uh, but with a government mandate that you install not Petya. Um, a, what do you suggest companies that have to uh, deal with this uh, mandate uh, do? You know, dare that I suggest fax machines were ever a good idea, but uh, – <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> but I mean, I mean, I, I mean, let's be honest here. The systemic and rampant offensive cyber capabilities from the PRC are just exposed another way here. I think if you're a, a Western or American corporation and you're operating in that environment, you need to put huge walls up. You need to resource this the right way so that if you do have to install something like this, it is not connected to your network. It is not connected to anything else that matters. And and you are you know, you're employing the appropriate amount of cyber hygiene. Um, so that's kind of part number one. But also, let's remember that this is throughout the supply chain. It's not just tax software. It's venture investment in American tech companies and everything in between. And so, you know, the, the need for Western organizations to put more resources against this is is not going to go down anytime soon. Yeah. That, uh, and I suppose, you know, I uh, uh, one thing that Western companies can do is make sure that they have uh, a good controls and audits and uh, restrictions on who can get access to the internal tools that, that, that give people uh, 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 super user powers. Uh, um, Nate, how did Twitter do on that uh, uh, front? Speaking of internal tools, the, the hack heard around the Twitterverse. Um, not very well. You know, I think a lot of people have heard the, the basic facts already. You know, hackers were able to gain control reportedly of, of internal Twitter tools, um, which then gave them access to the Twitter accounts of, of at a minimum several prominent individuals. They turned around and tweeted and suggested that um, use those accounts to tweet out uh, solicitations of donations to their Bitcoin accounts. Um, and, um, you know, I think some of the details of the hack are, are still a bit unclear. How many accounts were impacted, what information was accessible or accessed by these individuals, whether Twitter employees played some kind of role, whether witting or unwitting. In this hack, um, at, according to at least some sources inside Twitter in one report, um, one employee's account and credentials were taken over and used to gain access to an internal dashboard, which which allowed this kind of access. And and another report suggested a, 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 dash, a dashboard that I've, I've heard described to uh, described as God mode. 
Yeah, exactly. And and then, you know, I think there there was another report that said that these the way the hacker initially got in was by surreptitiously accessing an internal Twitter messaging board where those credentials for the, the God board, so to speak, were sitting out in the clear for anyone. That's to what I heard. That's just, you know, that is both plausible and shocking that somebody just pasted in the credentials needed to log into God mode to, uh, in an internal, I think it was a Slack uh, uh, space. Uh, um, and yeah. so this guy managed to get in and find it. Uh, it, it it's staggeringly bad news for uh, Twitter's reputation. Um, the best news Absolutely. probably is this guy I, I misused it in a way that was both extraordinarily public and not particularly re- remunerative or dangerous. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they they had some things working in their favor in this case, but it will, you know, I I imagine they they will still see some lawsuits directed at them coming out of this. Um, And, you know, I think it raises a lot of of important questions about, um, you know, what tools these companies have, um, how those things are, are configured, what they allow employees to do and whether all of those things are absolutely necessary how they're protecting those tools. Um, and then, you know, I think some of that debate will have carry-on effects to other things, including things like the encryption debate. Um, you know, you could see um, advocates of end-to-end encryption saying, see, when you build these kinds of access, uh, for even for these large, well-resourced, um, sophisticated companies, you can't necessarily prevent them from being hijacked by malicious actors. Um, I, I'm waiting for and, Twitter to make that argument. Don't, don't <laughs> regulate me. I'm too incompetent to, to handle the regulation. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, maybe they will. You know, I, I, I think the short version of this is if you thought that uh, Twitter – Really resembled nothing so much as an overgrown middle school. I, uh, this is more confirmation. It's even middle school coding and uh, 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 security practices. Yeah, and you know, I think uh, the other thing to keep in mind is is Twitter may not be alone in this regard. I wouldn't be surprised if if they're just the first ones who've gotten caught. So maybe you know, I, uh, the the reason they screw up so much on almost all of these is they're not as rich as the other big players that we watch uh, all the time. Uh, you know, and Facebook and Google make so much money that they can give us security and privacy as a kind of tip to the help. Uh, uh, but uh, Twitter doesn't have that luxury, and so they don't spend uh, as much on security. They don't spend as much time on it. Uh, and so it's not a surprise to me that they, they, they fail more often. They, uh, but uh, in the end, capitalism means that competition will reduce the profits of the really big people who are giving us security and privacy as a tip, and they won't be able to afford the tip in the long run, and we're all going to be screwed by all of these companies. Pretty soon, everybody's going to move over to the right-wing alternative, what's it called, um, parlor? Par- par- parlay, yeah. I think. Uh, <laughs> parlay, yes. Yeah. I, 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 although you, it's hard to believe some right-wing uh, uh, company is actually speaking français. Uh, all right, uh, uh, let's talk real law. Uh, Mark, uh, um, 
there's an Illinois lawsuit that I think really raises some pretty significant uh, issues about uh, how to train facial recognition technology. Yeah, you, you make a very good point. Uh, the, the underlying law is a 2008 Illinois state law. It's a, a sweeping law. It's called the Biometric Identification Privacy Act. And it requires notice and affirmative written consent for the collection and use of images and also applies to fingerprints and and retinal scans. And, and it provides for a private right of action and damages um, uh, up to $5,000 per violation. Uh, so with millions of users, which is what some of these companies have got, this creates uh, exposure in the billions of dollars if if plaintiffs can manage to establish standing that they were injured. Now, the current cases are against Amazon, Google, and Microsoft, and they were filed in in Washington and California, which makes them subject to the Ninth Circuit's very generous interpretation of standing. They allege a violation of that requirement to obtain affirmative consent. Uh, The companies used IBM's database of images to train their facial recognition software. Now, IBM had gathered this stuff up from Flickr, and their aim was to improve the fairness and accuracy of facial recognition programs. It's says, demonstrating at last the, uh, the the rule that no good deed goes unpunished. No uh, goes unpunished. They, they were uh, not being particularly paid for this. They thought it would be a good thing if there were uh, more women and more minorities in the database. So they went to Flickr, found them, uh, and said, well, these are all public on Flickr. Why can't we use them? Right. Uh, and no, the no, answer, it, it, it did say that there would be an opt-out for people who who don't want their photos used for that purpose. But but that's not what the law requires. The law requires an opt-in. Um, and that's exactly the trap that Facebook got caught in in a similar yep. lawsuit that they settled in February for $550 million. They, they tried to go to the Supreme Court to get uh, cert to have the Supreme Court review that very generous Ninth Circus uh, standing decision. And when they failed, they said, we, we better settle. So this, this precedent really suggests that Microsoft, Amazon, and Google should be worried. Um, well, they had to settle because, in fact, you don't really need damages, right? There's a, there's a minimum damage uh, award that you get without anything other than saying my data was used uh, without my consent. Um, what I like about this, like, uh, what I am struck by about this is that this database and almost any database of this kind, once it's held to have been collected without consent, is it's the COVID-19 of uh, plaintiff's litigation because everybody who touches it is using it and they're using it without the consent of the parties who brought the lawsuit, which means that anybody who downloaded this to, to train their um, software or just to take a look at it to see, you know, uh, whether it's really as balanced as the IBM scientists suggested um, is at risk for having uh, for liability for having used all of those uh, uh, biometrics uh, uh, without the consent of the party. So uh, I I think you're dead right to be worried about that particular possibility. So let me let me suggest a couple of things to go forward. One, of course, is we, we need a national privacy law that's preemptive, or at least a national facial recognition law. We don't need all the states doing this in a kind of haphazard way. 
And the second thing we need is we need enforcement of whatever the rules are through agencies, their injunctions, their orders, their fines, rather than through the private right of action mechanism. That's got so much unlimited liability that it really would be a check on doing good things with technology. But the last thing really is, do we really want consent as the way to protect people in this area? As you've been suggesting, if training facial recognition programs to be accurate and fair, it's a public good and it shouldn't be subject to a frustrating assignment of opt-out rights even. Now, you know, we can argue about whether a particular use of technology, facial recognition is in a particular case makes sense. I mean, even if it's unbiased and accurate to identify all gays or blacks or Uyghurs or Jews, we, we, we have to ask ourselves if that's a reasonable goal to pursue. And, and that's, that's what our, our friend, legal scholar Frank Pasquale is calling for. He calls it the second wave of algorithmic accountability. Don't just ask whether the technology is fair and accurate, but whether it should be used at all in a particular case. So that's the way forward. I, I, we're going to be talking about that with uh, uh, Daryl West uh, uh, shortly. Uh, uh, I have probably divergent views on exactly what fairness is in this context, but there, there's no doubt that uh, uh, the uh, Illinois Biometric Privacy Act is not producing fairness by almost anyone's standards uh, unless uh, uh, you have a plaintiff's, uh, member of the plaintiff's bar who owes you money. Uh, so Let's just do two or three quick stories. Um, the federal agents who busted Ghislaine Maxwell, I'm not even sure how do you pronounce her name, but she's Epstein's uh, right-hand woman, uh, uh, described her as a uh, threat to flee the country uh, and in the process said that when they broke into her New Hampshire home to arrest her. They found that she had wrapped a phone in tinfoil in what they described as a misguided effort to evade detection. And I guess I have to say, what the hell is misguided about it? I thought if you wrapped a phone in uh, um, uh, uh, tinfoil, uh, it was a kind of poor man's Faraday cage. Uh, does anybody think that you could uh, wrap a phone in tinfoil a couple of times and that it would still be a risk of uh, uh, giving away your location? So, Stuart, let me just jump in and say that when I read that, I was immediately reminded of the most recent Terminator movie, which uh, was a total waste of two hours of my life, where that, that was a plot point. Um, and so I don't think it uh, – I, I think you've got that as part one. And part two is you know, maybe it just wasn't very good tinfoil. That's all I wonder. Maybe that's right. My my guess is this is this is the prosecutors uh, 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 looking for some way to make the the uh, tinfoil uh, hat uh, for her phone relevant to the question whether she might flee the country, uh, uh, or maybe they just don't know anything uh, and uh, uh, or were pretending that uh, it was misguided. All right, uh, TikTok. Uh, getting lots more scrutiny, uh, including from Democrats, a lot of skepticism about TikTok. Uh, and TikTok has hired an army of lobbyists spending $100,000 a month on lobbyists right now. So uh, um, uh, they say in Washington, if you need a friend, uh, buy a dog. Uh, I think the uh, um, 
the real answer here is if you uh, if your dog won't uh, uh, stay home, then get a lobbyist. Uh, and uh, TikTok is uh, desperately pursuing uh, uh, friends and apparently having to buy them. Um, and uh, uh, Mark, I read it after all you know years as kind of ha- holding up the free speech banner and allowing all kinds of wacky stuff to be said in various reddits and subreddits uh, has um, joined the intolerant left in a way that really displays uh, the left's intolerance uh, uh, more dramatically than some of the uh, companies that hide it better. Uh, and my my favorite from uh, a, a, another story that just came out is that apparently when they uh, banned uh, uh, the uh, Reddit the Donald. Uh, uh, Reddit also took down uh, a subreddit that was dedicated to exposing hate crime hoaxes, fake ha- hate crimes like uh, Jussie Smollett. Uh, uh, and uh, Reddit said, "Oh, you can't, you can't mm-hmm. do that. That's hate speech." Uh, you know, saying that there are hate crime hoaxes is a form of hate speech. Uh, I was kind of astonished. Uh, well, actually, I'm not surprised that, uh, that that's what the, um, the folks who set uh, content moderation standards in Silicon Valley believe. But since nobody else in America believes it, it's worth pointing out just how far uh, to the left uh, uh, Reddit and the, the moderators have gone. Yeah, on Reddit, it's pretty clear to me that it's closing down compared to what it was before. And and maybe the elimination of that story in the subreddit was a mistake. I I don't really know. And if it was, it won't really be the first mistake that's happened in content moderation, and it certainly won't be the last. But I I don't really think it's evidence of harassment or liberal bias. Uh, I think if we want evidence of that stuff, we need a systematic study. Which is what the Wait, DM, they, they gave them, but they gave them the reason. Right. They said, "This we, is hate speech. We're we, shutting we, you down." We, we we need a systematic study of this stuff, and that's what DOJ has been calling for in their 230 recommendations about a month ago. And until we have that, it's just warring anecdotes in your opinion versus my opinion. We need something systematic to get a handle on this issue. So I, you know, I, I I understand that, and 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 there there are people who still believe the New York Times does not lean left, uh, um, but I think most people who actually pay attention understand that uh, the New York Times does lean left and uh, is leaning further left. Uh, if they listen to Barry Weiss's uh, creed occur. Uh, and yes, I would like to have evidence, but there will never be evidence that uh, can't be uh, uh, refuted by somebody saying, well, that's not really good enough. It's not a double blind study. Uh, and uh, I, I, as a working hypothesis, uh, uh, I would say Silicon Valley moderators are further to the left than the New York Times and are going to stay that way. Right? We, we, we need more than just welfare queen anecdotes, though. Um, uh, maybe. They're, 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 the anecdotes have piled up to the point where I'm happy to believe them. All right. Uh, uh, 
Mark, thank you very much. Uh, uh, thanks to Sultan Meji, to, to Paul Hughes, uh, to Nate Jones. Uh, 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 we're going to turn now to an interview with Daryl West about his book, uh, uh, Turning Point, uh, which uh, uh, covers uh, uh, policy making in the era of artificial intelligence. So, Daryl, uh, you have a book, uh, Turning Point, on uh, policy making in the artificial intelligence era, uh, and it's a kind of tour of the horizon of what uh, artificial intelligence is changing about a whole host of sectors of the economy and government. Uh, um, why don't we start just for the audience? What is artificial intelligence as you see it uh, uh, where where is it being used or how did it emerge um, a, as a transformative technology well thanks Stuart we appreciate your uh, interest uh, the book is uh, co-written with uh, Brookings president uh, John Allen and the way we define AI is as automated software that learns from data text or images and then can make intelligent decisions based on that analysis so the key concepts really are the intelligence the learning and the adaptability i mean we think ai is the transformative technology of our time it's being deployed in sectors from healthcare and education to transportation e-commerce and national defense what we wanted to do in our turning point book was to understand how it's being used and then what the societal and ethical ramifications are so i i i, I think that's a, a, a a great and daunting uh, exercise uh, uh, why don't we start with the, the, the places that you talk about uh, uh, AI becoming a significant factor um, and and you you, you, you highlighted uh, healthcare education transportation e-commerce and defense um, if you had to pick which of those do you think is going to be most affected by uh, AI and which is going to be least affected? I mean, all of them are being affected in certain respects, but they're all kind of at different stages of the process. So, for example, in the healthcare area, we now are seeing AI that has gotten very good at reading CAT scans and x-rays. Uh, there have been peer-reviewed uh, studies uh, showing accuracy rates just below that of human radiologists. Uh, so uh, that is a, a very important advance. Uh, we're also seeing uh, AI starting to be used for literature reviews. So, for example, we're in the middle of this uh, pandemic. Uh, there's AI that's scanning the scientific literature to try and identify new chemical compounds that could be helpful as a drug, as a, thera a therapeutic, or even as a vaccine for uh, COVID. Uh, there's a lot of use of predictive analytics in the healthcare, uh, just kind of tracking the spread of uh, coronavirus the impact in different communities, uh, possible racial uh, disparities in the incidence rates and the fatality rates. So we think healthcare is a promising area where there are a number of positive applications. It's just. But I have to say, I mean, they're, 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 it's certainly not not doing wonders for us in modeling uh, uh, COVID-19. Uh, uh, I agree with you. Radiologists, uh, uh, scan reading is the one uh, near success. Uh, it, uh, it's it's so much faster and so much cheaper. You might describe it as a success, uh, um, and it's put a lot of radiologists out of jobs, probably already. Um, uh, but beyond that, it's uh, you know uh, uh, 
predictive uh, analytics or reading the literature, I think, uh, you know, there's promise there, but it's not clear that uh, AI is going to make the difference immediately. You're exactly right. Uh, this is an emerging uh, technology with some successes, some failures, and a lot of hyping. Uh, and what we tried to do in the book is to break through the hype, try and point out where there is evidence. And the radiology example is kind of the gold standard uh, that's gone through a scientific peer review process in terms of the, the analysis and the uh, publications. There are other areas where people are talking about it. It may be a five to ten year time horizon before we actually see a lot of real successes in the area. But the AI is getting better just because the power of computing is getting Getting better, the access to data is getting better, and as all of us are living more of our lives online, there's just more information. And AI is really only as good as the data. So if the data are getting better, the AI should get better. So I, I, I just going back to the the, the the context that you talked about, I think the the the, the idea that AI is, is is affecting education is almost a hundred percent hype. Uh, in, in transportation, it's not hype. It's clearly close, but it, it may be that we have a last mile problem with uh, uh, autonomous vehicles that could last 10 or 15 years uh, because that last mile is full of dead people. Um, and so uh, it, it has the potential to transform uh, transportation, but exactly when is not clear. E-commerce, you know, I, I, you, you, there's a lot of data. Uh, I wonder uh, whether it's really AI that's being used, but maybe that's kind of chilling, uh, uh, frankly, because what it says is that it can uh, it can decide when to jack the price up on me because I'm because uh, it's Saturday night and they, uh, it figures I've had two beers uh, and I won't I won't go uh, shopping. Um, uh, so the the ways in which e-commerce uses of uh, AI will help consumers strike me as a lot smaller than the ways they will help uh, the companies. In the transportation area, that is probably uh, an area where AI is going to be a very central player because – with autonomous vehicles, it's really all about the AI because it's the AI that integrates the information from the LiDAR cameras that sits on the top of the vehicle yep. and then the various cameras scattered around the edge and basically integrates that information instantly and keeps your car in uh, the right lane and not moving over into your uh, neighbor's uh, lane. Uh, I think it is true that Autonomous vehicles are going to develop more slowly than we might have imagined even a few years ago. The problem there is there's a lot of lack of clarity in terms of legal liability. So in the case of human drivers, we know about 90% of the fatalities involve human error of one sort or another, drunk driving, distracted driving, and so on. And for all of its possible flaws, AI is not going to get drunk, and it's not going to be distracted. So autonomous vehicles will be a lot safer, but people get a lot more nervous about being killed by a machine than by a fellow human being, even if that uh, human being Well, in part because it, it kills you in ways that are kind of um, – dramatically unpredictable or uh, frightening like it it just ignores everything and drives you into the abutment because exactly it, it and like thinks, one of the it thinks there's a lane already, 
one of the fatalities had already was taken place. You know, the error was the LIDAR camera saw this all-white section of a truck and mistook that for the sky. And the car basically barreled right into this uh, truck that was turning in front of it. And, you know, gruesome accidents like that, you know, end up on the front page, uh, scares the hell out of uh, everybody. And so the auto industry is having a difficult time figuring out how to handle the liability of that, how to improve human safety uh, to a level that people actually like. Like, we've done national surveys, and I think right now only about 21% of Americans say they would ride uh, in an autonomous uh, vehicle. Like, most people simply don't think uh, the safety record is uh, good enough to warrant they themselves uh, riding in that car. Huh. I, uh, I, I, I think that's like people's protestations about how much they care about their privacy. They uh, they resist this until they've done it three times and what really want to get home and they've had more drinks than they want to admit. Uh, and then suddenly they'll do it. And after they've done it four times, they'll stop worrying about it. Uh, I think it's uh, overcoming that resistance is going to be easier than overcoming the regulatory concerns and some of the liability issues that uh, uh, arise. Uh, uh, although I think liability, it, uh, the rules are pretty clear. The, the, the people who sell the cars are just going to pay. Uh, everybody's going to say, uh, your car killed him, uh, and therefore you have to pay. And since they're big enough to absorb the uh, cost of insurance, uh, it'll just get added to uh, uh, the uh, the price tag of the car. That is certainly the case, but there are going to be arguments over if the car killed you. Is it the hardware with the car? Is it the software? What part of the software? Who's responsible? Like, you know, there are multiple millions of lines of uh, code in uh, these. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think you're over uh, uh, thinking that issue uh, because those things will be handled by commercial negotiations. The lawsuits will be against the car maker because they integrated everything. Uh, and then the car maker might say, wow, you guys sold us crappy software uh, and sue to get back the damages they paid. But those things are going to be handled in uh, contract negotiations in the end. Uh, and uh, software manufacturer will say, well, if you're going to sue me for, for bad software, I'm going to charge you twice as much for the software. And the company will say, well, that's all right. Uh, um, we'll, we'll, we'll cover this with insurance. Uh, so I, my guess is that the liability issue won't be hard. For defense, I thought defense was interesting because at the end of the day, most of the impact of artificial intelligence is also about transportation, uh, autonomy, uh, swarming uh, uh, multiple uh, um, drones, uh, um, uh, being able to cross the desert in tanks or big trucks uh, autonomously. Those are all Similar issues to the ones that we're facing in the, trans the civilian transportation sector. Uh, beyond that, where do you see AI going? I mean, I think that As is an defense. important point. Uh, my co-author, John Allen, has this concept he calls hyperwar, which basically just talks about war being speeded up and having this autonomous uh, element to it. And he often is uh, given the example of, you know, you may have some large uh, naval uh, vessel out in the middle of the ocean, 
and you're going to see a swarming set of, you know, hundreds of drones come in and attack that in an autonomous fashion. So that's what war could look like in the future. But you're right that transportation is going to be a big part of it. Uh, there's now AI that can perform preventive maintenance on military equipment. So uh, instead of waiting for the equipment to break down and then you have to get the parts and you need the right service person who can actually repair the vehicle, there's basically AI that can anticipate when repairs are necessary and fix the equipment on a proactive basis. So it saves time, saves uh, money, and keeps the equipment operating. So that could be a big advantage uh, for the military. And, and that's a big civilian. That's a big civilian opportunity as well. You know, you, you, you would like to have your your jet, uh, the jet engines. If we ever get fly again, uh, uh, you'd like the jet engine to be sufficiently instrumented that little subtle signs that maybe not everything is going perfectly will be caught in time just to replace a few parts instead of having a, a catastrophic failure. Absolutely. And there are going to be sensors on a lot of different types of equipment that can give early warning signs of uh, potential problems that left unrepaired uh, will become a, a real issue. And so that could make equipment much safer in a lot of different contexts, both defense and non-defense. So that that gives us a good sense. I, I, I think that's a, a place where we pretty much agree, where where the uh, AI is going to be important in the next five to ten years, uh, and defense is certainly part of that. The, the, I had a lot more trouble with your prescriptions for things that we ought to do and things we ought to be worried about. Uh, um, I, I, I'm really tired of People telling me that there's a problem with bias in artificial intelligence because I'm really actually quite skeptical. Uh, most of, uh, most of the claims of bias are anecdotal uh, at best, uh, and in many cases they found a difference. Uh, uh, based on ethnicity or gender and said, well, that, that must be discrimination where it isn't even clear, uh, that there's discrimination involved. The, the story you told about, uh, uh, dark skinned women being harder to classify, uh, uh, than, uh, light skinned men, um, ends up being a study of whether you can predict the gender of someone by looking at their picture. And it turns out that it's harder to, determine the gender of dark-skinned women than light-skinned men, which could turn out to be just a matter of uh, it's easier to see five o'clock shadow on light-skinned men than uh, uh, than dark-skinned women who don't have it but who have shadows that might fool the computer. I, 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 it's hard to see some bias. Uh, it, uh, in fact, it's kind of hard to see what the consequence would be that would be bad for racial minorities in a difficulty identifying the gender of dark-skinned women. I mean, the big problem we argue in the book about, say, facial recognition is the reliance on either incomplete or unrepresentative data, like the pictures that go into the facial recognition that, that train it. I mean, what considerable research has shown so far is that a lot of the pictures are of Caucasians, and the facial recognition actually has gotten pretty good. It's pretty accurate at being able to find the individual associated with that particular face. There are fewer minority images in those uh, uh, training uh, uh, data sets, and so the accuracy rates for non-whites often 
are 20 to 30 percentage points lower than for Caucasians. And we already are seeing facial recognition used... We're already seeing let, let me, facial recognition let, used in law enforcement, in border enforcement issues. So there could be major consequences for people if someone is falsely identified by facial recognition software. So I, I, I certainly agree with you that the evidence suggests that this is just a matter of how many, uh, how much training data you have, because the uh, um, uh, the AI uh, engines that do the best in identifying Asians uh, 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 from their face uh, uh, were uh, trained in Asia. Uh, and so you know, not a surprise. Um, but your remedy at one point, you say, well, uh, the training data ought to be representative of the intended population. But doesn't that guarantee that you're always going to only have uh, 10 or 15 percent of your training data uh, for uh, racial minorities. You're, well, you're building is, in a, a, a bias. Yeah, I mean, this is a problem, uh, and we do have to address that data training question because we do think that that is a big problem in a lot of AI applications, and especially with the applications being used in the law enforcement area, that those are areas where the risk of an error could have huge consequences for a particular individual. So in those cases, we just need to be very careful. In the employment area, you basically, most employers have moved to online applications. Some employers are using automatic screening software to review applications before they reach the point that humans start going through them. So the employment area is a case where we have to be very careful. So uh, it's not a problem in every area, but in these areas that have big consequences for people, those are the ones that we highlight as warning special attention. So you 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 talk about uh, these these are certainly serious problems, and it would be uh, uh, you know we'd we'd all be unhappy if AI was engaged in causing people to be arrested uh, um, improperly or denied bail improperly just because of their race. But there are disparities in the real world in the uh, rate at which uh, men and women, different racial minorities uh, and majorities get arrested. Uh, um, when you say at one point you suggest, well, we have to get rid of unacceptable disparate impact, which means that everybody needs to be represented in the consequence pool within about 80% of their representation in the uh, entering population. Um, you know, I, I, I'm going to ask you to defend that because that sounds to me as though you're basically saying we're going to take what AI tells us and then we're going to impose a quota that says unless um, uh, you produce a result that is within 80% of the representation in the population, uh, we're just going to change the numbers. And that means we'll just arrest more Asians because they're underrepresented and arrest, uh, arrest fewer blacks because they've been overrepresented, uh, arrest a lot more women because they're way underrepresented. I, this, is, this is a recipe for uh, uh, quotas in every part of American life, isn't it? Uh, not really, and that's not what we argue in the uh, book. All we really suggest in the book is to take the current anti-discrimination and anti-bias rules 
design for a bricks and mortar kind of world and apply them to the digital world. So, for example, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission uh, basically has this 80 percent threshold of unacceptable disparate impact. And what it uh, does is if they find that there's a uh, like if a financial institution is issuing fewer loans to minorities as opposed to uh, whites, that that would just highlight that disparate impact as something to be investigated. It doesn't prove bias. It doesn't necessarily mean there's bias. But if there's a substantial discrepancy of that sort, the EEOC currently basically says we need to look into that to make sure it's not evidence of bias. We're just suggesting. So let me stop. Let me, let me stop you there. I think that's rules to the digital world. No, I, I, you're applying them to AI outcomes, not just to the employment context. Uh, and you're, you're, when you say we ought to investigate it, what the hell is there to investigate? The AI has, doesn't, can't tell you why it produced the results that it did, just that any other result would be less accurate as a predictor of, uh, the uh, uh, performance on whatever test we have given it to uh, uh, to maximize performance on. Um, it, it may be telling you something you don't like about American society, uh, uh, but uh, it, it's you're not going to be able to say, oh, I see there's a little man in there and he's prejudiced. There is no little man in there. Uh, uh, there is no and there is no justification that can be provided other than this is the best possible outcome on the test we were given. Um, and so at the end of the day, you're not going to get an answer. And so you're either going to say, oh, well, I guess it tells us something about society I don't like, or you're going to say, well, we have to fix that and let's impose a quota. No, uh, we do not uh, come out in favor of quotas. But what we're worried about, say, in the finance area is digital redlining. We know that some banks have a history of redlining and not making loans to uh, low-income uh, uh, neighborhoods. In a digital world, it's actually even easier because you don't actually need to use race in your algorithm because there are so many proxies that essentially lead you to the same outcome as race. And so what we have to worry about is whether the AI somehow develops proxy measures that approximate uh, 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 prohibited uh, categories and then makes decisions on that. So that's where digital redlining can become a problem. And that's the type of thing that regulatory agencies need to be uh, focusing on. So the finance area, the employment area, like things that really affect people, those are the ones we are concerned about. So, OK, I, I'm uh, I, I, I profoundly skeptical of that uh, uh, explanation uh, uh, because I, I cannot imagine anyone, um, anyone who's in business, who makes loans, who would say, I could make more money not discriminating and, and using AI that uh, uh, doesn't have any built-in discrimination. But I don't want to do that. Give me, give me a solution that, that really hurts black and Hispanic families. Uh, uh, that's what I really want. Uh, no one does that. Uh, and that's not how the AI is going to work. Uh, uh, so I, uh, the idea that it's redlining, which is a very crude measure that obviously has some uh, 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 discriminatory impact to say, well, it's just like redlining, except that it actually is the best way of determining whether people are going to pay their loans back or not. Uh, uh, but we don't care about that because we've discovered that there's an impact on black neighborhoods that we don't like. Uh, so you're going to do what? Are you going to say you can't 
you can't use the AI or that you uh, are going to say, well, we're just going to ignore uh, uh, what the AI is telling us until we get to a point where within about an 80 percent uh, uh, measure, we're giving as many loans to black and Hispanic families as we give to uh, Asian and white families. Uh, I, I think you're stuck. Uh, uh, you're you're buying into quotas. And the only thing the AI is going to do for you is hide the quota. I mean, all we're doing is basically taking the current standard employed by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and putting that into the uh, digital uh, world. So it's not a new law. It's not a new requirement. It's not a new regulation. It's basically just taking the existing rules and saying okay. we need to apply that in the digital world. So I think I think the AI is actually demonstrating uh, how much difficulty applying that rule to Every aspect of uh, life that is touched by AI will turn out to be, uh, uh, but maybe that's where we'll end up. Uh, uh, that's a debate we're certainly going to have. Let me ask about social credit scores, because when you talked about uh, um, ethical challenges, you said social credit scores, the way the Chinese use them, uh, are obviously shocking and immoral uh, and uh, uh, we need to avoid that but you know i think we're already getting there in our own way we're not letting the government do it because we don't much trust the government but um we let visa decide yeah sure you're what you're doing is legal but we're not going to let you use uh credit uh to sell your guns or to make your payday loans or to start alternatives to Twitter that uh, uh, lean to the right. Uh, those are all things where uh, it is easy now to collect information about people and to poison their economic relationships with a whole host of people. Airbnb would say, oh, well, we think you engaged in hate speech, so we don't think you should be renting um, homes for people. Uh, or you're going to Charlottesville, and we don't think that that's a good demonstration. Um, uh, there's a lot of enforcement of social credit um, and centralization of social credit in the United States now, and I think we're going to see more of it, don't you? Uh, you're right. We are seeing that in the United States. It's not just a, a development in the authoritarian uh, world that American companies are mining social media uh, statements and uh, profiles uh, and drawing inferences from what that individual is like, their ability to repay. Uh, and employers are uh, looking at social media accounts as well, again, to infer what you would be like as an employee, are you reliable, would you be uh, productive, and so on. And I think we just have to be careful that in the use of these new uh, technologies that they reflect the values that we as uh, Western democratic nations hold. You know, we don't want to follow uh, the practices of authoritarian uh, countries. We have respect for human freedom, human values, and so on. We need to make sure our AI reflects our human values. Well, don't you think, though, that the lesson of the last 10 years has been that the technology goes where it's going to go, and um, it often feeds uh, authoritarian governments? And even if it doesn't feed authoritarian governments, it feeds a kind of private sector that very much resembles them. Uh, I, and I'm just not sure that, that we can 
stand on some moral ground and say that technology is not going to go there. The technology kind of goes where the technology goes. That has been the motto of the last 30 years where we've essentially had a libertarian model of corporate self-policing and we let private companies decide what new products to develop, what their uh, features are, to whom they uh, sell those things. But I'd say over the last couple of years, there's been what in the book we call a tech-lash, a public backlash against technology where people are reevaluating that old governance model and wanting more public input, public oversight. Uh, people are starting to question the decisions of uh, corporate uh, CEOs in the technology uh, sector. Uh, we suggest we need a new governance uh, model uh, that has more uh, oversight just to make sure that these new applications do reflect our uh, values. I'm, I'm with you there. I think that uh, um, the, the naive view that, uh, uh, of course, Steve Jobs is going to make our lives better and do everything right uh, is over. Uh, I'm not convinced that uh, government regulation will produce much in the way of a change in direction in the, uh, um, uh, uh, the technology. Uh, it may pick a few uh, uh particularly disfavored, toxified technologies like facial recognition and uh, impose some modest limits on them. But maybe that's better than nothing. Uh, if we're not struggling with uh, uh, whether to impose modest limits, then we're probably imposing none. All right. I, I'm going to uh, call, uh, call the uh, interview there unless you've got something that you'd like to say as a kind of wrap up of where you think uh, uh, AI is going to take us in the next 10 years, maybe that we're not expecting. Uh, well, first of all, uh, thank you for your uh, interest in the uh, book. It is uh, Turning Point, uh, put out by uh, Brookings uh, Press. And uh, our uh, uh, issue in the book is just I've given lots of talks to uh, uh, people around the country as well as around the world. What people seem to be worried about with AI is just making sure that humans still are in charge. And in that sense, I think our book is optimistic in just trying to point out ways that humans can still be in charge, even of this uh, complicated uh, technology like uh, AI. And basically, there are a lot of tools we have in terms of policies, uh, laws, and regulations to deal with the aspects that people view as problematic. All right. Thank you to Daryl West. Uh, yeah, the book, as he says, is Turning Point, Policymaking in the Era of Artificial intelligence uh, and uh, Daryl it's a pleasure to have you on the uh, uh, the program uh, uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Brookings uh, they uh, uh, of course sponsor lawfare among other things uh, and I uh, have produced some uh, remarkable public policy uh, uh, materials thank you very much all right. So thanks to uh, to Daryl West and to our uh, News Roundup cast. This has been Episode 325 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, if you've got suggestions, send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. If you want to insult me, please do it in a review uh, on uh, uh, Spotify or uh, iTunes. Uh, uh, as long as it's accompanied by five stars, I will read it on the air. Right. Uh, 
uh, uh, it's got to be entertainingly abusive, but uh, uh, I'm sure you can do that. If you follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn, where I am at Stuart Baker or Stuart.Baker, uh, I, uh, I often uh, predict which stories we'll be covering and ask people to vote on them. So uh, they, if you watch for that over the weekend, you may get a chance to vote uh, on uh, which stories we should cover uh, the next Monday. Uh, and uh, uh, I think that should do us. We are uh, almost done for July and we will be taking August off. So please enjoy the podcast of the next uh, uh, week or two. And uh, then we'll be gone until September 8. And uh, you can join us then as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy and government.